Scripture reading this morning will be in Acts chapter 1. If you could all please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 of the book of Acts, chapter number 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while they were staying with, I'm sorry, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went in up to a, a, the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Father, I pray now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. I pray that you'd use me over these next few moments as a mouthpiece just to speak clearly and to, to communicate uh, what it is that you have for us in your word. <clears throat> Pray, God, as we begin this study of the book of Acts, that you would guide our church, that you would help us to have a clear vision for what it is, the task that you've given us, what you've commissioned us to do, and how it is that we can accomplish that through the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are, beginning a new book study. Uh, let's start by be, by explaining that graphic for a moment. I know you all are already just looking at it because it's it's new. Uh, I chose this very intentionally to highlight a few things that I want us to keep in mind as we go throughout our study of the book of Acts, and hopefully uh, seeing this each week will remind you. First of all, notice the crown at the top. Uh, that should remind you of the reign of Jesus, which is what this book is all about. As we saw last week, it'll come up again today. Jesus, at the end of his time on earth, sends out his disciples to spread the reign of Christ throughout the world. And that leads to the subtitle, Making Disciples of All Nations. That comes straight out of uh, Matthew 28, 19. We looked at that last time as well, uh, where Jesus told his followers, go out into all of the world, making disciples of all the nations by baptizing people, uh, by teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. That's the message that we've been given to take to the world. As people submit to Jesus as Lord, as they become a subject in the kingdom of Christ, we do this one person at a time, one nation at a time, until all the world is in submission to Christ. And this is how we advance the kingdom to all nations, by preaching the gospel, 
discipling those who respond with faith and repentance. Next, notice the two big, bold words right in the middle, kingdom builders. To explain my choice of those words, uh, let me tell you a story. Back when St. Paul's Cathedral was being constructed in the 17th century, a reporter for the London Times stopped by to see the progress that was being made by the construction crew. He walked up to three men on the crew. They were all doing the same task. And one by one, he went up to each man and asked them some questions. Uh, he walked over to the first worker and he said, what are you doing? And the guy said, well, isn't it obvious I'm putting this rock here into this slot? Then he went over to another worker who was doing the exact same task and he asked him, what are you doing? He said, I'm just here earning a day's living. Then the reporter walked over to a third member of the crew and he asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm helping to build St. Paul's Cathedral. So I've entitled our, our sermon series through the book of Acts, Kingdom Builders, because I want us not just to see Paul baptizing a convert or Peter preaching a sermon or Barnabas helping encourage and disciple someone. I don't want us to get so caught up in the minutia of each story that we miss what's really happening. This is the kingdom of Christ being built. Each church that we see planted, each soul that is saved in the book of Acts, that's another brick being laid. That's one more piece of the puzzle being put together. And by the way, you and I ought to have the same mentality about our work for Christ. Every time that I preach a sermon, every time any of us give in the offering, every time we have a baptism like we're going to have here in a couple of weeks, uh, all of our work for Jesus is helping to advance his reign. One disciple at a time, Christ is building his kingdom on earth. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of that work. All right, enough about the graphic. Let's talk about the book. First thing to understand about the book of Acts is that it is a sequel to the book of Luke, which is why we're going there next. Uh, same author, same recipient as Luke. Uh, you even see that in the opening words of the book of Acts, where Luke re refers to the first book that he's written. Uh, that's referring to the gospel that we've been studying the last couple of years. And so same author, this is Luke, uh, second volume to his friend Theophilus. Uh, the focus of the Gospel of Luke was Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It was all about Jesus. Uh, the focus of Acts is on the growth and expansion of Jesus' kingdom. It's, it's if, if you will, it's the rest of the story. It carries forward what Jesus began. You may remember from Luke chapter 1 that Luke told us he wrote his first account based on eyewitness testimony. Uh, people who had seen Jesus feed 5,000. People who had heard his parables and teachings. People who were there when Jesus was crucified, they'd seen him after his resurrection. Luke gathered information from these eyewitnesses, uh, multiple sources. He corroborated these stories, and then he wrote them all out in chronological order for Theophilus to give him confidence and certainty that everything he'd heard about Jesus was, in fact, true. When it comes to the book of Acts, however, Luke wasn't just telling about things he'd heard from eyewitnesses. Certainly, that's part of it, but Luke himself had seen much of these things take place. Uh, Luke was a doctor, as we know from Paul's letters, and Luke became a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. Uh, we'll see this transition take place in Acts 16. We're not going to go there right now, but there's a shift in the pronouns. Uh, where Luke has been saying prior to chapter 16, uh, he's writing about things Peter or Paul or others were doing. He says, they did this, and then they went here. In Acts 16, it shifts, and he begins to say, then we went here, and we did this. And so you see that Luke is now with the Apostle Paul, traveling with him, and basically the rest of the book, uh, Luke is giving us his firsthand account of what it is that happened. So Acts is the rest of the story, uh, starting right here at the ascension of Jesus and continuing for roughly 30 years. 
uh, from that point. It's the history of the first generation of the Christian movement. Uh, What was it like when Christianity was just getting started right after Jesus left? What were those early years like as churches were being planted? How did they go about spreading the gospel at home and abroad? Those are some questions we're going to see answers to as we work our way through this book. Acts is, just as a side note, the second largest book in the New Testament in terms of total words. So it's a big book. Uh, if you're wondering what's the, what's the largest book in the New Testament, Luke. Uh, so by the time we are finished studying Acts, we will actually have been uh, through one-third of the New Testament. So those of you who've been with us through Luke, uh, you can pat yourself on the back once we get done with Acts. You're one-third of the way through. Uh, let's talk about <clears throat> the title of the book, Acts. Kind of a weird title if you're new to the Bible. Sort of like uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. You think that, that, that just sounds weird. Uh, Acts of whom, you might ask. Uh, who is it that's doing these things? If you look at your Bible, it probably says Acts of the Apostles, which is sort of true, uh, but not really. Uh, there are plenty of other characters beside the Apostles that are uh, doing things in the book of Acts. Verse 1 also adds an interesting angle on all of this. Because it says in the first book, referring to Luke's gospel, Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, which implies that the second book will deal with all that Jesus continues to do and teach. And so there's a sense in which these are the acts of Jesus working through his followers. As we'll see, he directs and empowers them by the Holy Spirit to do this work of building his kingdom. So really, if you want a really accurate title, it would be the acts of Jesus through the apostles and the church by the power of the Spirit. Uh, We can start a campaign to rename the book. I don't think it'll stick. Uh, Last bit of introduction before we get into the text. I just want to say at the outset a few words of caution uh, when dealing with the book of Acts. First of all, Acts is a transition book. Okay, The the Judaic age is coming to a close. The church age is beginning. There's a lot of unusual things we're going to see in Acts. Uh, And this is why in the early chapters, you're going to see things like Christians going to the temple for the hour of incense. Uh, while holding to all of the the food laws and all the things that made up Judaism. This also explains why we see a lot of abnormal things happening in Acts, miracles and signs you you see throughout the book. Uh, Some would say that those things continue. I understand that. I personally am quite skeptical of that. And I would say if you're expecting to see the same kinds of miracles, the same frequency of them taking place today, I think you're missing the fact that this is a time of transition. The author of Hebrews refers to these miracles and signs of the early church in Hebrews chapter 2, where he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, speaking of Jesus, and it was attested to us, by those who heard. That's referring to these early followers of Jesus who he had sent out to be witnesses of what they had heard from Jesus. Verse 4 says that these ones who went out with his message, God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So at least part of the reason for all of the signs, miracles, wonders, supernatural gifts that you see in the book of Acts and in the early church Uh, This was God attesting to the message of the apostles. He was confirming to people that saw these miracles take place, that these are genuine uh, apostles of Jesus speaking the truth of God. As a way of confirming their message, he he gave them miracle-working power. And so there was a a special outpouring of divine power given to that first generation of Christians. I don't think 
Uh, we should expect to see those things happening today, uh, nor do I think there is compelling evidence from church history that these things really happened after those first few uh, generations, really, that first generation. It seems that after the death of the apostles, or somewhere right around there, we don't really have credible reports of miraculous things happening uh, for those the next several centuries. In, in the year 400 AD, for example, John Chrysostom wrote concerning miracles that there is not so much as a trace of that power left. This is, uh, what is this, 1600 years ago. So this is a way back in history, just a, a few centuries after the book of Acts. And he says that's all gone, even at that point. And so it seems like <clears throat> these were unique times in the book of Acts where God's spirit was poured out in public manifestations as a witness to the world of the truth of the message of the church. Uh, not everything we see in Acts can we expect to continue forever. People being raised from the dead, uh, healings, speaking in tongues. I know many people uh, today try to do those things, but I really think that's misunderstanding the nature of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit obviously uniquely empowered the apostles of Jesus during this time when the church was just getting started. We're going to read about Peter, for instance, walking down the street and his shadow is healing people uh, as he's going. Uh, should we expect those things to take place today? I don't think so. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, over a hundred people are given the ability to speak languages they'd never learned before. And again, I don't think we should be reading these things, drawing a straight line to today and acting like all of these should uh, still be taking place. Another word of caution before we begin Acts is to recognize we're no longer just reading about things Jesus said or things that Jesus did. This is in one sense where Luke is pretty easy because most of it is Jesus. Uh, he's telling us things, he's teaching, he's doing things, and Jesus never does anything wrong. Uh, not so with the book of Acts. Now we're going to be reading about things that Peter said or things that Paul did. And that means sometimes they're going to do things wrong. It's a temptation of many who read narrative sections of Scripture to assume that it's all exemplary for us. Uh, but we can't assume that. Sometimes Luke will just be telling us what happened without commenting on whether it was a good thing or a bad thing to do. Uh, in fact, we're going to run into that next week. Uh, this is a historical book. Not everything that Luke records is meant as a commendation of the actions taken. One thing we can look to Acts for is a model of how the early church functioned. This is one reason I think it's going to be very profitable for us to study this book. Because in the book of Acts, we see the record of uh, how churches really started. The, the very first churches that, were, that, that began, the first uh, little groups of Christians and how they were organized uh, how the life of the church functioned, what our services should be like, how to make decisions in the church, and what the overall mission and goal of each local church should be. And so by reading through this book of Acts, we're going to see how we here at Lakeshore Baptist Church fit into God's big picture of how he's building his kingdom on earth. So with all that as an introduction to the book, let's begin with this first section, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. As we start, it's important to recognize where we are. Uh, if you've ever uh, watched a sequel to a movie or something, it's important to know how much time has passed. Uh, sometimes you watch one movie and then the next movie comes out and like five years passed in between and a lot of things changed. Uh, well, with the book of Acts, nothing has happened. No time has passed. Uh, Luke picks up the story right where he left it, at the ascension of Jesus. And really, everything we looked at in the last few verses of Luke 24, he reminds us of here in Acts chapter 1. And then the story goes on from there. So Acts 1 Beginning in verse 1, Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, referring to his ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles 
whom he had chosen. And we'll stop right there for now. Uh, Notice the reference in verse 1 to the Gospel of Luke, that first book he wrote to Theophilus. Uh, Chapter 1 of Luke has a similar introduction to that volume, in which Luke refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, which seems to imply he was a government official of some kind. Luke says to him, "I I wrote that first book to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach until his ascension to heaven. So as we've said, uh, the book that we call Luke covers the life, the ministry of Jesus, culminating in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Acts then picks up the story from there and carries it forward, tracing the work of Jesus through his disciples as they carried out the mission that Jesus left them with. Luke reminds us that Jesus gave commands to his apostles before he left. We saw those commands last week. Uh, You remember Jesus told them to go out, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And notice that Luke tells us Jesus gave these commands through the Holy Spirit. Uh, back at the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, we're told now all the people, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, on Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so here at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him. And the very next chapter of Luke begins with these words, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So this was not a a one-time event where the Spirit comes on Jesus and then left. Uh, The Spirit filled Jesus from that day forward throughout the rest of his ministry. Everything that Jesus did, everywhere that Jesus went, was under the direction of God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Uh, One more verse on this point, Acts 10, verse 38 says, God anointed, God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So the Spirit guided Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. Jesus submits to the Father's will, which was communicated to him through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit also empowered Jesus, giving him uh, the words to say, the ability to heal sickness, cast out demons, and so forth. All of that Everything Jesus did was done by the power of the Spirit of God working in him. So back to our text, Luke says that his first book dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Uh, Let's also talk about that word apostle a little bit. That's going to come up in the future as well. Apostle is not the same word as disciple. Uh, All of us who are Christians are disciples. Disciple just means a learner, a follower of Jesus. Uh, But none of us are apostles. No one alive today is an apostle, not a single one. Uh, Whenever you see somebody claiming to be an apostle of Jesus, run. Uh, Being an apostle is something far more than just being a disciple. Notice at the end of verse 2, Luke says these apostles were chosen by Jesus. Jesus selected a few of his disciples, a few of his followers, and he appointed them to the office of apostle. Uh, The word apostle means a delegate or ambassador, someone who is sent out with a message and carries with him the authority of the sender. Apostles are those whom Jesus specifically chose and set apart to be his representatives and to speak authoritatively on his behalf. So these apostles are given special responsibility and unique authority over the church. Uh, They did not pass on this office to others. When they died, the office of apostle died with them. 
This is one of the major differences we would have with the Catholic Church. Uh, they believe that Peter basically passed on his authority as an apostle to the next guy, and it's been passed down continually through the popes. Uh, none of that, of course, is taught in the Bible. Uh, these 12 men were specifically chosen by Christ to be his official representatives, his apostles who would launch the church. Uh, Mark 3, verse 14, if you want to see where this happens, it says he, Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So way back at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he handpicks 12 people. And he says, you're going to be my apostles. And then for the next three and a half years, he's training them, he's teaching them, preparing them for the day when he would send them out as his representatives into the world. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. Uh, the foundation of a building is what you build first. You don't keep building it. It's underneath everything else. Everything else gets built on top of that. And so this was a unique office for that first generation of the church. Uh, by the way, the prophets and apostles, these are the ones who gave us our Bible. Uh, the Old Testament was written by the prophets, the New Testament written under the authority of the apostles of Jesus. And so they spoke on, uh, on, on behalf of Jesus. And when the apostles died, the office of apostle ceased to exist. No one today can rightly claim to be an apostle. But we have their teachings recorded for us in the words of Scripture. Uh, there are certainly many pastors and teachers today who have been gifted and called by God to teach the Bible, but none of them are apostles. We don't have the right uh, to teach whatever we want. I don't have the authority uh, to come in here this morning, give you a message that I just came up with and say it's from God. Uh, that would be overstepping my, the bounds of my authority. My job is simply to take the scriptures that were given to us by the apostles and prophets and teach them, explain them to you. That's what I try to do here every week. Uh, one more quick note on the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So these are the signs of a true apostle. Uh, unless you have miracle working power, don't claim to be an apostle. Because the Bible is clear that these were signs of a true apostle. If you claim to possess that kind of authority, you ought to be able to prove it by these demonstrations of the Spirit. Now, there were more apostles than just the twelve that Jesus chose originally at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, James, for example, is mentioned as an apostle in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul, the apostle Paul as well, uh, later in Acts. And then Matthias, there's some debate about, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but one of the prerequisites for being an apostle is that they were all chosen specifically by Jesus. You see that in Acts uh, chapter 1, the verse we just read, that they were chosen by Christ to be his apostles. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus appeared to James. And this is where he commissioned him to be his apostle. That's another uh, prerequisite for being an apostle is that they had to have had an encounter with the risen Christ. All of these apostles did. The apostle Paul as well. Uh, Jesus appears to Paul, calls him to be an apostle, commissions him to go preach the gospel of the Gentiles. And so we'll see some people who were called apostles in Acts. They weren't originally part of the 12, but they were all chosen by the risen Christ. He gave them the authority to be his representatives. All right. Uh, Luke says, Jesus gave these commands to the apostles he had chosen. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, after his death on the cross, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus appearing to his disciples wasn't a one-time event where he just showed up and then ascended and left them. Uh, This took place for over a month. After the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared alive from the dead for 40 days. These apostles spent roughly six weeks being trained by Jesus after the resurrection. It seems to have been an intensive teaching time for them, right before Jesus was going to send them out. Uh, He took this time of 40 days to drill down the most important teachings to his apostles. And what was the theme of all that? Luke says he was speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom was here. Jesus had resurrected from the dead. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. That's the coronation of the king. That's the start of his reign over his people. And their job was to advance Christ's kingdom to all nations of the world. And so as Jesus was ending his earthly ministry, he takes these 40 days to make preparations for its continuation through these 12 apostles that he had chosen and trained. After three and a half years of walking with Jesus, hearing his teaching, then being witnesses of the death and resurrection of Christ, now they have these final 40 days of training before being sent out. Uh, In a sense, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the ascension of Jesus is sort of like when Elijah uh, was taken up to heaven. You remember that story? He leaves the mantle behind for Elisha. Uh, That's sort of a way to think about the ascension of Christ. He leaves, uh, but his ministry isn't done. He passes it on to these apostles. I think here in verse 3, Luke is also emphasizing the authenticity of Jesus' resurrection. Notice he says that he presented himself alive by many proofs. Uh, In the Greek, it says convincing proofs. Uh, It's emphasized. Jesus showed himself to many people over the course of over a month's time. Nobody could have just imagined this uh, for weeks on end, let alone a whole group of people. No, they all really did see Jesus alive from the dead. And during this this period, Jesus was teaching, giving last-minute instructions to his followers about the kingdom of God. And then he ascends up to the Father's right hand, and his kingship was inaugurated. And now, uh, these followers of Christ are commissioned with the task of advancing his reign across the world. Uh, Acts 1 verse 4 says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now that's a strange thing, isn't it? Uh, He's told them their task is to go out and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations of the world. And then he says, first step, go back to Jerusalem and do nothing. Uh, kind of reminds me of, I had a gym teacher who's kind of obnoxious uh, when I was a kid, and he used to, we'd race, you know, boys, how we all like to race. Uh, we would race, and he would he would get us all lined up, and then he would say, ready, set, stop. And every time, it, it caught me off guard. That's sort of what's happening here. Jesus is saying, okay, you're going to do this, you're going to go out into the world with this message, preach it to all the nations, but first go back to Jerusalem and do nothing. Just wait. Uh, he doesn't want them to begin their ministry of preaching and establishing churches right away. He says, wait until you are filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's exactly what Jesus himself did. Uh, Jesus never preached a sermon until he was first baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. That's the beginning of Christ's ministry. He waited until that very moment in his life to begin his ministry of preaching, teaching, healing, and all the rest. And doesn't this tell us something about the need that we have of the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit to do the work of God? We dare not go out in our own strength and try to witness for Christ. We must follow the leading of the Spirit. 
We looked at some of this briefly on Wednesday night, but notice in verse 4, Jesus refers to the Spirit's coming as the promise of the Father. This is something that God had promised. In the Old Testament, God had in fact said that one day he would pour out his Spirit on his people. Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Also, the prophet Joel wrote in chapter 2, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. By the way, uh, Peter quotes from this passage in Joel on the day of Pentecost in the next chapter of Acts, and he says that what they were seeing in the speaking of tongues on that occasion was the fulfillment of what Joel had prophesied. And so this was promised by God in the Old Testament that he would send his spirit, pour out his spirit on his people. And when this happens, there would be signs and prophesying and miraculous things taking place. All of that happens in Acts chapter 2. Now, Jesus says in our text, not only that the coming of the Spirit was the promise of the Father, but he also says, you've heard of it from me. Uh, And then he goes on in verse 5 to say, for John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So John the Baptist and Jesus both also promised the filling of the Spirit that would come. Uh, In Luke chapter 3, for example, John the Baptist had said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, speaking of Jesus, is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's a prophecy of the day of Pentecost. We'll see that in Acts chapter 2. Jesus, of course, had taught many times about the coming of the Spirit. Here's just two places. John 14, he said, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Uh, So the Spirit is called our helper, our guide. Uh, Verse 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then John 16, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. So you see very clearly Jesus says, I'm going to leave you, uh, speaking of the ascension, and when I do, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. We're going to talk more in the coming weeks about the Holy Spirit and what his function is in our lives, but suffice it now to say, uh, the Spirit is our helper. Uh, He empowers us, he directs us, he gives us boldness to speak for Christ, and he causes us to be holy. Uh, Even back in the Ezekiel passage we read a moment ago, God said, I'm going to pour out my Spirit going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. I think that's one of the reasons why he's called the Holy Spirit, because he's the Spirit of God that makes us holy, that causes us to follow Christ obediently. And so the Spirit's role in our lives is to make us more like Jesus, to help us in our task as we seek to advance the kingdom of Christ on earth. And so Jesus tells his followers in verse 4, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, We saw this as well in the last portion of Luke 24. Uh, Jesus told them to go out, spread the gospel of the kingdom to all nations, uh, but don't do it right away. Instead, go back to Jerusalem and wait for a few days because I'm going to send the promise of the Father, 
The Holy Spirit will come and baptize you. The word baptize means immerse. Uh, hint, that's why we don't baptize or sprinkle babies here, uh, but I digress. So they will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. They will be filled with the Spirit. He's going to come and indwell them, as we'll see in the very next chapter of Acts. Verse 6, <clears throat> So when they had all come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I think the reason they're thinking this, Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2, both seem to say that the kingdom comes when the Spirit is given. And Jesus had been speaking to them about the kingdom of God for these 40 days, and then he tells them the Spirit's about to come here in a few days. <clears throat> and so they're thinking, uh, does that mean the kingdom is coming in a few days as well? Of course, we know the kingdom doesn't come all at once like that, like they were expecting. It's a gradual increase that is still going on today and will continue until all the nations of the world have been discipled. But they were still thinking of the kingdom as coming all at once. Uh, notice also the word restore. Are you going to, at this time, restore the kingdom? So they were thinking about going back to the way things used to be, before Rome came and invaded them and took over their land. But Jesus' kingdom was way bigger than they were thinking. Uh, remember in Luke, we saw repeatedly that the disciples of Jesus misunderstood the nature and extent of the kingdom. <clears throat> and it appears here they still haven't totally understood what Jesus was, was teaching them. Uh, really not until Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, does it seem that it, it finally sinks, sinks in, that Jesus didn't come to rescue Israel from Rome. Uh, Jesus came to save the world from sin. He didn't come merely to rule over the Jews in Israel, but over all peoples of the world. And so Jesus says in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in answer to their question, are you about to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says that it's not for you to know God's plans and God's timing and what he's going to do for national Israel. Uh, stop being concerned with that. Instead, focus on your job, which is to preach the gospel to all nations of the world. The kingdom of Jesus is his rule over us through the spirit within us. And that kingdom spreads by our witness to the world, not by our fighting. And so they still were misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom. If you want to summarize the book of Acts in one verse, you really have it there in verse 8, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's what the book of Acts records. Uh, chapter 2 tells us about the Spirit coming upon them and empowering them. And then from chapter 2 until chapter 7, we will see their witness of Christ to Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 11, the gospel spreads to Judea and Samaria. And then the rest of the book traces the advancement of God's kingdom to other nations outside of Israel. Until at the end of the book, the gospel gets as far as Rome. Uh, notice also in verse 8 the word power. They will receive power. Uh, just as Jesus was anointed at his baptism and the Spirit empowered him to carry out his work on earth, so they will be baptized by the Spirit for their task. Uh, next, notice the word witness. Uh, these disciples of Jesus who had seen him die and rise again, they were supposed to go out and be a witness. Uh, think of a courtroom when you draw in a witness. Uh, he's supposed to just tell you, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I witnessed. And this is what their job is as well. Go out and tell people that I'm alive. You've, you've seen me die. You've seen me rise again. So be a witness of that event. 
And our job isn't much different. You and I are to go tell others what Jesus has done in our lives, how he died for our sins and rose again, how he's changed us. Uh, If you've experienced the transformation of the gospel in your own life that took you from a lifestyle of sin to a life of serving Christ, that's a story that you should share with others. All of us can be a witness to Christ and the truth of the gospel. Notice also the plan. Jesus says, start with Jerusalem. Uh, During the day of Pentecost, which is about 10 days after the ascension, the Holy Spirit falls on these apostles and they begin to preach to all of the people visiting Jerusalem during this time. Uh, People from all over the world are going to be there for Pentecost. And so Jesus tells them, just wait there. And when the Spirit comes on you, begin to do this work of preaching the gospel right here where you are in the city of Jerusalem. And then he says, go to all of Judea and Samaria. So if you look at this map here, you've got Jerusalem uh, circled there. Then he says, go north to the rest of Israel. <clears throat> go to Judea, that's, that's kind of the whole region. Uh, and then go up to Samaria. Now there's a lot of significance to this. It's not just geographic, although it is that. It's also ethnic. Uh, remember, all of these apostles are Jews. Uh, Jesus was a Jew. Christianity, in a sense, is a continuation and fulfillment of Judaism. But Jesus tells them, don't just convert Don't just convert Jews. Uh, Samaritans are half-Jews. He says, then after you've converted Samaritans, then go to the ends of the earth. So Christ's kingdom isn't just about Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, That's the start, but it's not the end. Eventually, the goal is for people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation of the world to be living for Christ. And so the kingdom of Jesus is way bigger than the apostles realized. Even at this point, they they were still too limited and they're thinking about the kingdom. We'll see this more as we study Acts, but Peter in particular had a hard time accepting the fact uh, that Jesus' kingdom wasn't just for Jews, but it even includes Gentiles. Again, we'll get into that more as we go through Acts. John Stott writes concerning the reign of Jesus. He said it would be supernatural in its character, transforming the lives and values of its citizens. It would be international in its membership, including Gentiles as well as Jews, and it would be gradual in its expansion, beginning at once in Jerusalem, then growing until it reaches all the ends of the earth, uh, both time and earthly space. So basically, these disciples of Jesus misunderstood all of that. (laughs) They misunderstood the timing, the nature, and the extent of Christ's kingdom. By asking Jesus if if he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now, it's very clear that they misunderstood the nature of Christ's kingdom. Verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. There we have the ascension of Jesus, just like in the last chapter of Luke. Jesus takes his place at the right hand of the Father. He will remain there, conquering nations by the spreading of his gospel. And as the gospel is preached to all nations of the world, as nations are discipled, Christ's kingdom spreads until one day he will return. After all of his enemies are made his footstool. And you and I have a part in building that kingdom by preaching the gospel, the good news that we can be forgiven of our sins. Verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So Jesus is going up and angels are coming down. Verse 11, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I don't know. I mean, it's not every day you see somebody floating up above the clouds and vanishing. Uh, where do you think we would be looking? Uh, but, the, but the word gazing in the previous verse seems to imply a certain sadness. Like they were looking on uh, with sadness that Jesus was leaving, looking on longingly. 
And so the angel says, well, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the angels say he's coming back again one day just like he left. Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Uh, a Sabbath day's journey is <clears throat> a measure of distance. It doesn't mean it's on the Sabbath. Uh, basically, a Sabbath day's journey was 2,000 cu 2, cubits, excuse me, uh, which is roughly half a mile. Uh, it was the distance the Jews had decided you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. And so that became a unit of, of measure. And so they were about 2,000 cubits uh, from Jerusalem. If they're on the Mount of Olives on the backside toward Bethany, which is what Luke 24 says, they're headed back to Jerusalem. 2,000 cubits puts them right in the vicinity where the Last Supper of Jesus took place in the upper room. And so it seems likely that this group assembled here in the next few verses uh, may very well be in that very same place. Uh, verse 13 says, they had, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Seems to imply this is the same upper room where the Last Supper with Jesus was. And it says there was Peter and, and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So that's 11 names, 11 of the 12 apostles. Remember, Judas Iscariot is no longer with them. Uh, he had betrayed Jesus, and then he went out and hanged himself. We're actually going to see more about that story next time. Uh, but you've got 11 apostles left. And verse 14 says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Uh, the women, probably a reference to that group of ladies who had followed Jesus up from Galilee uh, all the way to Jerusalem. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and others in that group. These are the same women who watched Jesus be crucified, uh, the same ones who went to anoint his body and found the empty tomb. Uh, here they are with the apostles. Also, you have the mention of Mary, Jesus' mother, uh, who is here along with her sons. Uh, okay, if I criticize Catholicism again for a minute. Okay, glad you're cool with it. Number one, uh, Jesus had brothers. You see them mentioned right there in verse 14. If you compare with the Gospels, we even know their names. Uh, Judas, James, Joseph, and Simon. And he had sisters as well. All of that means Mary was not perpetually a virgin. She had other children. Number two, there is never any Mary worship in the Bible ever. Uh, she's never mentioned, in fact, in all of the New Testament after this verse. This is the last mention of Mary. And notice, nobody's lighting candles to her. Nobody's praying to her here. Uh, she's there with the rest. She's worshiping God, praying. She's just like the rest of Christ's followers. She was a sinner in need of God's grace. By the way, just as a side note, Jesus' brothers initially did not believe in him as Messiah. It was only after the resurrection that they were convinced of who he was. And as I said before, G Jesus appeared specifically to James. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, we're not going to go there right now. Uh, but it says there that Jesus uh, made a, a special point to visit James in particular. And it seems that that was where he commissioned him to be an apostle. And James then becomes one of the leaders of the early church. We're going to see his name many times coming up in the book of Acts. Notice that Luke tells us they were all in one accord, which speaks to the, the unity that they had. Uh, these early Christians were unified. They were devoted followers of Christ, serving the same master, uh, headed toward the same mission. And so there was a unity there. Notice also they devoted themselves to prayer, which speaks to their dependence on God. Uh, they knew that if the kingdom of Jesus was going to be built, God had to be the one to do it. You and I are, are mere, merely tools in the hand of God, doing his work in the world. 
And then I just want to read <clears throat> verse 15. It stops mid-sentence. We're going to save all of that uh, for, for next Sunday. But I want to point out one detail here as we close. Verse 15 says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. In those days, so it seems to imply sometime after the ascension, but before Pentecost in that week and a half period or so, Peter stands up among the brothers. This is basically all of Christianity. Uh, there may have been some disciples up in Galilee who didn't make the trip down, but this is the core of people who are going to go out and launch the church. And it says there was in all about 120 people. This is how it starts. These 120 committed followers of Jesus gathered together in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer and waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're a small church, so 120 might seem like a lot to us, but there are many churches within just a few miles of us that have far more Christians right now that are gathered in one room together. Churches all over Indiana, churches all over the Midwest, all over America, all over other countries of the world, all worshiping and serving Jesus. How is that possible? How did this first group of Christians so impact the world that 2,000 years later, there are millions of people living for Jesus? There are literally tens of thousands of groups this size all over the world. The only explanation for this is that it wasn't their doing. It was the work of Jesus through his followers by the Holy Spirit. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 